Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits to thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I'm a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today, it turns out that the right person is me. From time to time, I'll do a solo podcast. Typically, they're kind of rants on a topic, or I'll jokingly say I'm feeling a need to preach about something, self-care or board service, you name it. But this one is neither a rant nor a preach. Different. I suppose it's actually the first time I've talked publicly about race. The first time I've reflected out loud and in front of a microphone about my white privilege, its intersection with my sexual orientation, just about my own journey, I suppose. So why now? Well, this past year has given us all so much to think about. And I've been thinking, and I've been watching. I've watched nonprofit leaders with organizations serving BIPOC communities work to educate largely white boards about the impact of COVID and George Floyd's murder. I've seen organizations hire BIPOC leaders, organizations that have simply not done the kind of deep work necessary to set that leader up for success. And I ask myself, where am I in all this? I mean, I have this platform. People think of me as an expert. People turn to me for advice. They consider me an expert. I actually tell people I am one. But I don't get that title if I don't do the work. Being an expert in the nonprofit sector demands that I invest deeply, that I do work that I need to do to understand how racism shapes our sector, how bias is embedded in every nook and cranny of it. I have a responsibility to do this work. And so it is in that spirit that I'm going to share some of my own journey and my reflections today. So folks who travel a lot, or used to travel, use what are called roller boards. You might know them as carry-on luggage with wheels. You pull it wherever you go on your trip. And if it's a short trip, you have everything in it. Like everything. It's always kind of horrifying when TSA pulls you aside and has to examine the contents of your rollerboard. Oh my God, did they just pick that up for everyone to see? <laughs> anyway, I think we all pull rollerboards behind us, at least metaphorically. They contain our stories, the moments that shaped us. We're often just too busy or more likely too scared to examine their contents. So today I thought I'd share some of what you would find in mine. I grew up in an insular town on Long Island. Solid, middle class. No serving bowls on our dinner table. You ate what was plated and seconds were frowned upon. Overeating, I guess that was gluttony. Big houses were mansions. I think my dad thought that was a four-letter word. And any kind of ambition was thought of with a certain kind of disdain. I think I learned that enough was plenty. So in our community, there were two kinds of diversity. First, there were Irish people and Italian people. That's diverse, right? 
Did your name start with an O or did it end with one? The second big element of diversity in my town, all you had to do is drive down the main drag and cross the tracks. There it was, the racial divide. And all kinds of judgment and pejoratives were associated with that side of the track. I knew them all, but rough was about the kindest one. So when it came to high school, there was no Amityville High School for me. Too rough. Off to Catholic high school, I went. Difference was not embraced by my family. One of my brothers, John, was brilliant, hilarious, and different. Undiagnosed ADHD, we suppose, but who even knew that was a thing in the 1960s? Anyway, he was seen as trouble, and he turned to alcohol at a really young age. Ultimately, it is what took him at the age of 59. And it was that same brother who brought home his Jewish girlfriend from college, and I was introduced to anti-Semitism up close and personal. It was awful. So off to college I went, a Catholic college, and everyone was someone I could have gone to Catholic high school with or played wiffle ball with on my block growing up. I was on this path to live an insular, homogenous life until I realized I was different. And I'm talking about a kind of difference that in the early 1980s was not just seen as different. It was seen as a sin of one of the worst possible kinds. You see, I was a whole lot of white, and I had a whole lot of privilege for sure. And then, aha, I had a whole lot of gay. The world became a different place for me. In some of the most important ways, so very, very good. I understood who I was fully, like a key puzzle piece had fallen into place. I met my wife, and we've been together nearly 40 years. And coming and being out is freeing, and it is fundamentally a decision to live in the world with true authenticity, and that is a gift, a gift I wish for so many people. The authenticity came with a price. I lost my first-class citizen card. I became part of a disenfranchised minority group. I was shunned by my parents for a few years. I was a legal stranger to the children my partner and I planned together. And for 25 years until their death, my in-laws could not say my name out loud and refused to welcome me into their home. Realizing my difference meant I came face to face with injustice, inequity, and I had a decision to make. I could let others take on the work of fighting against it, or I could raise my hand. I don't actually come from a family of hand raisers. No judgment, I just don't. They care deeply about things, make no mistake. But it seems that I am unique in that I came with some activist chops. I like to say that my mom was feisty, just kind of code for being kind of a pain in the ass. I might have inherited the feisty thing and manifested it differently. And so I raised my hand. And I became a national LGBT activist running GLAD, a large LGBT organization. And in so doing, I became a part of an orchestra of voices of leaders fighting injustice and making the argument that diversity enriches our journey through life. I had the great privilege of meeting so many leaders. Folks like Rebecca Coakley, who runs the Ford Foundation's Disability Rights Project. I hired Rashad Robinson at GLAD, who is today the CEO of Color of Change. 
These are just two of so many remarkable people I have met on this journey. Folks who have enriched my understanding of injustice, fueled my own appetite to be an agent of change, and folks I just simply admire so much for their inability to stand idly by. But I'm not naive. I have and always will have cover. I'm white. I'm affluent. And I have all the privilege that comes with that. My wife and I have had impressive careers many would not have access to. Our affluence makes us the right kind of gay people. The ones whose kids the private schools recruit. The zip code and the perennial garden that secures us a place on the prestigious town garden tour. We have a house on the Jersey Shore in an affluent town that is very straight, very Republican, and very Catholic, and yet we can be the life of the block party as the only Democratic Jewish lesbians on the block, <laughs> maybe in the whole town. All of this life experience beginning in my insular hometown of Amityville has shaped me. And you see, being gay offers me zero immunity from my white privilege and deep racial biases. I'm crawling with them, and I want to do better. Life is short. A pandemic that continues to rage offers us daily evidence of that. I am considered a nonprofit expert working to increase the effectiveness of the nonprofit sector by coaching and supporting its leadership. It would be more than a little disingenuous not to go to work on myself as a leader. It's time for me to catch myself when I refer to Dr. Seuss as controversial, not to use the real word, racist. On January 6th, 2020, I watched as men and women stormed the U.S. Capitol. My gut reaction came in the form of a text to my team. I was horrified. My text read, why is no one being arrested? A BIPOC woman on my team responded quickly, without thought and hesitation from her gut. They are all white. Two reactions. One from each of us. I was deeply embarrassed that I had been so clueless that my own white privilege had blinded me to what was happening that day. And my colleague's reaction? I'm going to get fired for that. When she told me that, I was actually stunned that she would think that I would react that way. I was humiliated that I missed what was really happening that day and really struck by her belief that a statement like that could, in fact, lead to her being fired. I am lucky that I have a platform. People listen to me, they take my advice, they respect my point of view, and with all of that comes responsibility to walk with much greater intention on this journey. You know, I like to think that I lead with a kind of humble confidence, a phrase that I learned and love from my friends at Charity Water. It's an attribute they look for in team members they hire. The truth is I am not confident on this. I am not confident on issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I need to do better. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world read my blog, listen to this podcast, and thousands are part of my online membership site, the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. In the Leadership Lab, we have begun an intentional journey with our friends at The Rabin Group to create an authentic sense of belonging for those we welcome through our virtual doors. 
We aspire to support members on their journey and through this work play a role in building and supporting a more diverse leadership in all manners of diversity, race being one of them, of course. Supporting diverse leaders, building diverse leadership, it's not just a nice thing to do. Our sector doesn't ultimately thrive unless we crack the nut of white privilege that is currently embedded in the governance, financial support, and leadership models of the sector. David Brooks is a conservative political commentator, and he recently wrote about the fact that we live in an age of minorities. Now, stay with me. David Brooks might not quite get that there is nothing minor about anyone, and that as such, it's a kind of outdated term, but his thinking is worth reflecting on. So I'll paraphrase a bit and tell you that Brooks talks about the idea that we live in this world where members of different BIPOC communities have to really think about their identities in relationship to other communities. Let me explain. He goes on to describe four mindsets. Number one is assimilation. Here, communities work to fit in, shedding or masking their identities. Number two is separatism, where communities stick with their own, feeling a stronger sense of identity together. Number three, combat, a mindset with no appreciation for common ground. It pits oppressor against the oppressed. Seems to best define our society today. No appreciation for common ground, right? No one looking for it, many not hopeful it can be found. Number four is the path that Brooks suggests. He thinks this is the path forward, integration without assimilation. He says, it is as the prophet Jeremiah suggested to transmit the richness of your own cultures while seeking the peace and prosperity of the city to which you have been carried, end quote. Peace, an interesting word. You know, the Hebrew word is shalom, and it means more than just peace. It's rich, this word. It means that nothing is broken and nothing is missing. Nothing is broken and nothing is missing. The way the world was meant to be. This is a hard path. It means creating good trouble, clashing of different points of view, healthy debates, failing forward, difficult conversations, the path where you aspire to see that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Brooks describes this path as embedded within the richness of a particular culture, trying to tackle the human problems, the common human problems, to live a life of dignity and to have a positive impact on the world. For me, it's about seeking justice for those who do not have it in this world. The Jews call this tikkun alam. This value is central to Judaism, the obligation we have to repair the world. That's the path I'm choosing. This reflection is one of the many conversations I have planned with listeners as I continue on my journey. I recently recorded a podcast exploring a popular Netflix series, Made, M-A-I-D, from a variety of angles. I've spoken with Beth Cantor to co-author Allison Fine to help us understand the opportunities and the challenges of smart technology. To talk about embedded racism and white supremacy 
and how to be really careful and thoughtful about the use of artificial intelligence. I welcome ideas about topics you feel you will find meaningful both personally and professionally so we can offer you enrichment opportunities while you're on your journey. During the fall of 2021, the Rabin Group spent a great deal of time understanding the experience of the thousands of members who are part of our nonprofit leadership lab. We will hear what they have learned and the changes they recommend. I don't imagine that will be an easy conversation, and I know it will not be an easy to-do list. I understand that it will be hard work. The path I am taking the path I am choosing to take, it takes hard work. I expect to be held accountable, and I sure would love some company. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful too. Lastly, thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.